So I want you to think with me right now of running into somebody who fills you with rage. Could be anybody. But they have to be somebody who, when you think of them, they, make, they have to make your skin crawl. So I want you to think of them right now. It could be a leader of the political party you most despise, or the entire political party, a radical member of any cult, an Arminian, that kid who bullied you in school in a way, way back then, and you still think about it to this day, any church that plays music of any kind, or your boss. You walk home after a nice stroll in your neighborhood, but you decide to take a slightly different route. Just want to see some new things. You're below your step going, you're like, I got to hit 10,000 today, so I'm going to take the longer route back home. And as you walk down that path, the person you most despise, the person who makes your skin crawl, you're like, how do you think the way that you do? You see them, the one whom nobody in their right mind would put you and her or him in the same room together. They are walking towards you. So your anger starts boiling within you. Your heart beats a little bit faster. You start, you start sweating a little bit, like, oh, this is, this is about to go down. Your thoughts range from, how could you? Or you seriously believe that? Or that's who you voted for? Or you know how often I think about what you did to me? Or you're a Giants fan? These thoughts sprout so quickly, you're not sure what to start off with. Like, how do I, how do I swing the bat at them? When people are hearing the Gospel of John read out loud to them in the first century, this is probably what they thought. When Jesus is met by the Samaritan woman. This is how Jews and Samaritans looked at each other. Talk to any Jew at this time. What I'm describing is what they wanted to say. Talk to any Samaritan at this time. That's what they wanted to say. However, Jesus befriends them. And he converts them. Two groups who hated each other. We'll get into this because the Samaritan temple was destroyed by the Jews. They set up a, a kind of a rival temple and rival priesthood. Jews came over and destroyed it. So there's some bad blood between these two. Happens about 50 years before this. And the shockwave that John 4 produces is they're brought together by, by Jesus. Their, their hatred's gone, and they say, you're the savior of the world. And coming on the heels of John the Baptist's confrontation with his disciples, and contrasting with John's confrontation with Nicodemus in John 3, we land on the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And, and really, despite a world of difference, you couldn't put two tremendously different people in the same room. The shame and guilt which exudes from the Samaritan woman and confusion around worship, Jesus comes and offers himself. I'm your savior. So we're going to see what he does in these three points. First is source of living water, verses 1 through 14. They meet at a source of earthly water, but he says, I have water that doesn't run dry. You don't have to keep coming back here. It's going to come from within you. 
And the second is need for living water, verses 15 to 30. This woman has a desperate need of cleansing. She needs not just like a, a, a single cleansing. She's like, I, I have a lot of shame to get rid of. I have a lot of guilt to get rid of. What can you do for me? And, and I'm sure you, you think the same stuff. I, I have a lot of guilt. I have a lot of shame. What, is, what does Jesus do for me? And lastly, it's drinking this living water. Verses 31 to 42. And it's a big question. How can you drink this water that never runs dry? So I pray this becomes clear throughout, and it's, it's probably one of the simpler ones I'm going to give you. It's Jesus saves sinners. That, that, just comes out, that just comes out clearly in the Samaritan woman. And so we're going to start with point one, source of living water. These first two verses, they're like the beginning of John 3.22. They kind of, it kind of puts these two together. It's, it's an odd way to start a story with a Samaritan woman. However, what John's doing is he's connecting these stories by repeating these accounts of baptisms and baptizing more than the other. Because that's exactly how John 3.22 starts. He's also highlighting the growth of Jesus' ministry. Because they're now feeling like, this guy is baptizing a lot of people. The Romans are like, oh man, our political system is about to get, it's about to get upended. The, the Jews of this day is like, he's now confronting the temple. He's going to take us over. He's growing way too fast. He's discipling way, way too many disciples that used to be ours. This is growing too fast. So in verses 3 to 4, he departs Judea and heads towards Galilee, which is where he's from. Oddly, though, he goes through Samaria. So to give you kind of a, a visual example, we're in Orange County. It's like traveling to Los Angeles and going to Luke's house first. And then going over to Los Angeles. Like, what are you doing? Where are you going? The faster route is to Los Angeles, not San Bernardino. It's not convenient, nor quick. And so, it's, it's, ways, it's way of getting to his destination, but he's, he's, uh, he's constrained or compelled to go. So it's, the, the, the phrasing here is, is not quite as, as punchy as the original. It's, it's it was necessary for him to go. He's compelled to go. This is not like him deciding, like, I'm going to go here. It's, like, it's almost like the wind pushed him over there or the spirit pushed him over there. And Samaria is not a place, though, that a Jew wanted to go. Strains are high. Like I said earlier, rival temple was set up on Mount Gerizim, which is what the woman describes. The Samaritans set up a, a, a rival temple to the Jewish temple, a rival priesthood to the Jewish priesthood. And so if you're a Jew going in there, like, you're trying to steal my thunder. It's, it's like, again, it's like a, a Dodger fan walking into AT&T Park. Probably not welcome there. Or a Giants fan walking into Dodger Stadium. Probably not welcome there. Or you walking into a church that plays music. You're like, this is not my, this is not my place. So you're thinking, like, there's something about to go down. So verses 5 to 6, Jesus, Jesus goes to Sychar and Samaria near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. It's not just a way of situating kind of geographically. where It's not just like a landmark for them. It's, it's something where when the first people heard this, they probably thought, this isn't good. 
It's not just, by the way, a well is here. It's actually John's way of creating suspense. If you go back to Genesis 33, which is where Jacob's well is talked about being purchased, it actually doesn't talk about a well, it talks about a field. Jacob's well actually doesn't exist in Genesis 33. It's kind of implied within this. It's talked about earlier in Genesis, but not here. Jacob purchases land at the end of Genesis 33. And beginning of Genesis 34, if you know the stories where Dina is defiled, she walks into this field. Hagar, Abraham's concubine, is cast off here after Sarah banishes her. says, you're not welcome here because you had a son, and I'm really jealous of you. She goes in the wilderness wondering what's going to happen to her, where an angel meets her at this well. These are the things that, the, that John wants you to think about when you come to this. It's not just a place name. Things happened here. They would have heard this. They would have seen this. In a way, John sets up this scene for those listening by implying kind of the same question. What's going to happen here? Men and women didn't get along here. It was actually pretty bad for the woman at this time. And you're also kind of thinking, too, What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to do the same thing that happened to, to Dina? So there's, there is thick tension that you want to feel. And I think it's right to with this. Because that's the kind of reputation that this well had. Things didn't go well here. So Jesus sits there at the sixth hour, which is about noon. Last I checked, noon in the summer is really hot. Really warm. So this woman comes to the well in verse 7. But there's a big problem. Women don't go to the well in the middle of blistering heat. Usually go when it's dusk, when it's cool, when it's not super hot. It's far too hot. People usually went, especially women, usually went in the evening to grab, to grab water when it's, when it's nice and cool. And so again, it's implied... We'll hear about it more later, but it's implied she's probably avoiding something. You're not sure what yet in the story, but she's avoiding something. You're just not quite sure. So Jesus tells her, give me a drink. That should be shocking. If you were, not, if you were anyone within earshot or saw this scene occurring from outside of one of your windows, you would have been scandalized. A single guy talking to a single girl in a Middle Eastern context. That doesn't happen. They don't talk. An unaccompanied man, a woman approaches a man. That doesn't happen. She walks up to him. She sees him at the wall and she walks up to him. They're not married, they're not related, so you're, you're, you're questioning, like, what is going on here? They're alone together because it says, for his disciples had gone away. So John's really playing up. They're all alone. It's hard to overstate just how much of a shock this is. Most of us are not from Middle Eastern context, know the Middle Eastern context all that well, but this is shocking. A single woman, a single man, and you learn more about the single woman after this. This can be bad. And the Samaritan woman, she's, really, she's fully aware. She knows what's going on. She knows what's happening in verse 9. It's, it's one kind of unthinkable thing for 
a Jewish man to talk to a Jewish or to a talk to a Samaritan man. Like, okay, yeah, we got tensions, but man to man, like we'll just punch each other and figure this out. But it's utterly scandalous for a Jewish man to be approached by a Samaritan woman. Jesus doesn't approach her. She comes to the well when she sees him there. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush, though, but gets right to the punch in verse 10. And the woman, she misses it in verses 11 to 12. It's not, a, it's not, it's not a simply a scandalous meeting. Those around don't know this. We, we hear this. We read this in the Bible, so we know this. But this is God's son, his gift, coming to the sinner, to this woman. For he has drink, but this drink is living water. Now, what I want you to do is don't immediately go to the theological understanding of living water. Think first, what would the Samaritan woman understand from this? Because he's unmistakably evoking Genesis 1 to 2, the rivers flowing from the Garden of Eden, the four rivers. Psalm 1, a tree planted by flowing waters. He's building this imagery. Ezekiel 47, which is the living waters flowing down from this temple. And Zechariah 14, waters flowing from Jerusalem. That's, that's probably what he's evoking. He's not just saying, I have water that doesn't end. He says, I'm the new temple. Because all of these texts are water around temples. The new temple. That's what he's saying. I'm living water because I'm the temple. I got water coming through me, coming from me for you. But she misses it. Because clearly, Jesus, he doesn't, doesn't have a pail, doesn't have a bucket. She looks at him and is like, really? Like, are you just going like, to lap it to me? Or are you just going to slap the water out from the well and give it to me? She doesn't have the tools. So she also knows the story of Jacob. Notice what she calls Jacob, her father, which is interesting. She says, are you greater than, than Jacob, my father? Ending this section, Jesus points to the difference between earthly water, which, which is probably what she's thinking. She's thinking, you just have a lot of like river water. Like, where's the river around here? It's a desert. Where's, where's, I don't see a river around here. Where's this living water you're talking about? You never have to worry about this fountain going dry, though. So she's confused. She sees what's in front of her. She knows what Jesus tells her. I, I can't make ends out of this. It says, you don't have to continue drawing water from this, though. You don't have to battle the heat of the sun. And you never have to worry about this fountain going dry. So Jesus tells her, you look at this thing, that will go dry. You go back home, your water is going to run out. You're going to have to keep coming back here over and over and over again for more water. But he actually alludes to Isaiah 35, 6. Because this water is going to well up within you. You're not going to go somewhere to get it. You're going to have it. It's going to be in you. And every one of you and I, we know we need this. We know we don't want to have to keep going back to the well for more, to nourish ourselves, to make ourselves feel better, to, to get rid of whatever guilt or shame that we have, to not be seen by everybody else, like, oh, you're the town pariah going out. We don't want to be seen. 
So we want this. We want the Almighty within us. This brings us to point two, the need for living water. Samaritan woman responds in verse 15, as we all would in this dry and arid climate. The, the best guess is this climate is about like our climate. And she won't have to continually go during the heat of the day. When she's told this is going to come within, she's like, that's great. I don't have to go out in the heat anymore. I can stay home. I don't have to look like a crazy person walking in here. I don't have to be sweating on my way over to the well. Nobody has to see me going over there. This sounds fantastic. Can't wait for this. Are you going to like set up a well in my house? What's, like, what's this going to look like? Searching eyes that never leave her alone. It's like, I want to leave that. I don't want people looking at me all the time. This guilt and the shame that I, that I have, I don't want that to be exposed. I want to stay within myself. You can hear her thinking, as, as I'm sure many of you thought before, I don't have to expose myself. I don't have to be known. I don't have to, everybody doesn't have to see me every single day coming out here. Give me this so I can live my life on my terms. I want this wall in my own house. I don't have to go out there and look, look crazy. And then like a, a, a knife to the heart, stabbing her with enormous conviction, Jesus points out to why she doesn't want to go out. He tells her, I, I know why you don't want to go out. I know, you, I know why you want to stay home. In verses 16 to 18, he very simply asks, call your husband and have him come here. He's not ignorance. He's exposing. I know why you don't want to go out here. She responds correctly that she has no husband. Doesn't mean that she doesn't have somebody there. But Jesus continues, that doesn't mean that there's no man there or that there's not a husband there. It's just not her husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have, I'll put a stress on it, is not your husband. She's with somebody else's husband. Like, now. As she's talking to Jesus. You see, she's currently in the midst, currently, as she's talking to Jesus, she's currently in the midst of committing adultery, of sleeping with another, man's, with another woman's husband. She's caught in the midst. She's not just with some random guy that she met on the street. She's pulling in somebody else who's somebody else's husband. So she's caught. So not only is Jesus confronting a Samaritan woman, scandalous itself, but he's speaking with a woman with a history of adultery and currently committing it. And I want to point out something that's probably crazier than that. He doesn't stone her. He doesn't cast her off. He doesn't say, get away from me, you wicked person. He still talks to her. That's the wonder of this story. Not that she's this crazy sinner. She is. But he doesn't cast her out. He doesn't stone her, which, what does the law say? You're supposed to stone her. He doesn't do that. 
likely dumbstruck, this woman begins a conversation about his priesthood and worship. He's like, you're not a human. You're something bigger than a human. She must be wondering, you're no, you're no ordinary man, but certainly some sort of prophet. She's probably not thinking Messiah. She's like, you can tell things about me that I have never told anyone. And so verses 20 to 25, they can come across evasive. I know a lot of commentators say, like, oh, she kind of just averts the conversation, but she's actually not. There's certain truth that she's like kind of trying to divert, like, oh, he exposed me. Like, I got to get out away from this. I got to get my heart. I got to close this back up. I can't have, I can't have him, him coming back in here and exposing me like this anymore. There's, there's, some, there's some truth to that. But he calls himself living water. So what is he calling himself? He's calling himself a temple, a place where you worship. And so what does she ask him? Where do we worship? kind of calling yourself a temple, so John's using this to call about worship. It has more to do with Jesus' self-disclosure that he brings living water, the new temple, incarnate before the Samaritan's eyes, and she's also avoiding. It's both. Remember, the Samaritans, they set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. That's what she's talking about, Mount Gerizim. There's a rival temple there. There actually used to be a rival temple there. So she assumes Jesus is some Jewish prophet of old. And she's certainly avoiding a discussion of her sin because she's like, I'm about to get pounded. This is not good. He's going to expose a lot more out of me. Let's kind of divert this conversation. Because how does Jesus respond at verse 21, though, thinking about temple? Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, he's talking about Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem, which is where the Jewish temple is, will you worship the Father? If you are her, you're like, well, then where? There's only two temples I know of. What other temple are you talking about? She must have thought with everyone else, like, where on earth do you go then? Only two that I know of. Where do you worship? Worship as God had prescribed to Moses involved the sacrifices, priestly order, rites and liturgical movements, the blood, the smells, the continual reminder each and every day, week, month, and year that you're a sinner in need of salvation. But that was not primarily through the temple. It was through the spirits. And Jesus points this out. And not just spiritually kind of ethereal, spiritually kind of conjure up like good feelings within your heart. It's like, no, in the Spirit. Not just spiritually, but in the Spirit. Verse 23 states, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And that, that Spirit should be a capital S. In the Spirit is how we worship. How we always worshiped. Because you don't just bring a sacrifice and that sacrifice equals the sacrifice for your sins. You have to know that I'm sacrificing for the sacrifice of our sins. That I can't do this. And he's talking about worship in the Holy Spirit. That and that alone is God honoring worship. For neither the temple in Jerusalem, nor the temple Mount Gerizim, nor anywhere else that we worship, but in the temple that is Jesus Christ. That's where we worship. Whom flows living water to keep us spiritually nourished. He's like, I'm telling you how to do this. I'm telling you how to worship. 
Not just this thing you built. You built that temple. The Samaritans built the temple on Mount Gerizim. You built the temple in Jerusalem. You don't worship where you built. You worship where the Lord built. This woman knows that the Messiah will come for us to be a mediator between God and man. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. And then Jesus responds straightforwardly, and it's, it's hard to kind of bring it out, but he uses Yahweh's name here, the name that the Lord uses with Moses in Exodus 3. It says, I who speak to you am he. It's the egoe me. I am is the one who speaks to you. Which is shocking. He doesn't usually say that to people. Very select few people does he say it to, but he says it to the Samaritan woman. Doesn't cast her off and says, I'm going to stone you. You're a sinner. You're impure. Get away from me. He says, I'm the Lord. Believe me. Then the disciples hurry back right after he reveals himself in verses 27 to 30. But what do the disciples say? Like, you just displayed yourself to this woman. No, they said, you're talking to a woman. Like, that's what you're worried about? That fact that he's talking to a woman, not that he just revealed his divine identity to this woman, but the fact that he's talking to a woman. That's what you're worried about. Their, their awe over this solitary conversation with a woman exceeds their awe of his divine identity. You're talking to a woman instead of you just revealed yourself as God. They're way more worried about you're a man talking to a woman than you revealed yourself. But the woman goes into the town and tells all the town folk in verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be a Christ? Can this be the Christ? But notice something. What does she say to the townsfolk? A man who told me all that I ever did. She's confessing. She just said, I did a lot of stuff and he told me it. Now I'm telling you. The woman who hid from everybody, who went in the middle of the day and said, I don't want to be seen by anybody else, now goes and tells everybody, this is what I did, and he did this for me. But unfortunately, the way she pitches the question, can, I, can this be the Christ, the construction used actually expects a negative response. It's, it's hard to describe, but she's actually she's kind, of, kind of doubtful. He might be, but I'm not sure. Because ultimately, this story is really not about her. She's exposed. She's a sinner coming to Christ, but it's really not about her. It's really about those she proclaims to about the Christ who believe him. And so I'll ask you the question, have you drunk from this living water as we move into point three, drinking this living water? The disciples in verses 31 to 38, they miss everything. Remember, they're out in the fields or out in the town buying bread to come bring in, getting water. And they're oblivious to Jesus' proclamation to this Samaritan woman of his identity. They ask him to eat because they just got back from getting bread. It's like, you're probably hungry. You just traveled a long way. You're probably really hungry. Let's give you some, some food. But he tells them of some mysterious food. I have food that you don't know where it comes from. Imagine, if you're the disciple, 
You're like, what are you talking about? What mysterious food is this? Verse 33, the disciples look at each other and they're like, I didn't give him food. Did you give him food? I didn't give him food. Did you give him food? Like, did somebody kind of backhand him some food without us looking at it? But the food Jesus is talking about, this is like the living water he just described to the Samaritan woman. It's not this worldly. That's not the food I'm talking about. It's the same thing he just told the Samaritan woman. I'm telling you about water that's not this water. That's heavenly water. It's his mission and work. That's his food. That's how he nourishes himself. Obviously, he eats bread, he drinks water, but when he's talking to them, he's like, this is my food. It's, it's like his response to the devil when he's tempted. What does he say when the devil says, hey, turn these rocks into to food? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. I'm, come, I'm here to do my work. I'm not here to do your work. So he must accomplish the work, verse 34, that he proclaims is finished in John 19. I have work still to accomplish, which he then says in John 19, I have finished the work. It's done. For the fields are whites with harvest. I don't know much about agriculture, but some of the stuff I do know, some grains that have white on the top. He's talking about that. There's a lot of it. There's, there's, there's stuff out there. We got to get it. And, and that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come as both the reaper and the sower, and he's commissioning reapers and sowers. Because he's about to talk to the Samaritans, those people he's about to pluck. Jesus is the sower of verses 35 to 38 because he does sow in verses 39 to 42. He does exactly what he just said. The disciples, and both you and I, we, we don't change hearts. The word that we implant doesn't do anything. The, the stuff that we do doesn't do anything. The only role both you and I play as the disciples play in this story is we experience the reap. We experience something. We're, we're given a part in this redemptive story. Do we do anything in this? All we do is, is proclaim. All we, do is, all we do is plead, all we do is ask, but we can't do anything. It's the Lord who both sows and reaps through our work. We can proclaim the gospel, which is what he's saying. We can say the words, we can use what the Bible tells us to say, but we can't implant it. It's not us. Nor can we cause its growth. He's saying, I do all that stuff. All I'm telling you to do is go tell them. That's it. Only our triune God does the work. We are are but merely proclaimers. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do at the end of verse 38. Others, probably he's talking about himself, have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And what's astonishing about verses 39 to 42 is that happens. That word sowed is now reaped. The Samaritan woman is the one who sows it and is reaped by the disciples. And notice what John says in verse 39. It's possible by by this time she's accepted. The woman partakes in his work as well. She starts proclaiming. This one who who was only known as the adulterer who didn't want to be seen, who wanted to keep her sin hidden, go in the middle of the day, 
not to be seen by eyes and go take from this water, what does she do? She goes into the town. She's now known by everybody. They probably all know what she's done. It's not a huge city. They talk to each other. There's gossip. They probably think like, oh, you're the adulterer who's coming to us right now. This one who is only known as the adulteress in the middle of her adulterous relationship when confronted by Jesus, she's the one on her word that the Samaritans believe. She's the first one to go. And they're like, yeah, we believe that. From the very one who they know, you're on your sixth adulterous relationship. She confesses, and then she proclaims. They don't look at her like, oh, like you've got this terrible past. We can't listen to you. Oh, you've been changed? I want that change too. I want that water too. I don't want, to have, I don't want my past to you coming back up to me and giving me the shame and guilt. How remarkable is that? That's, that's the crazy thing about the gospel. Not that it takes clean people. It takes people like this married woman and uses her to proclaim. Think you're too far gone for the Lord to use you. Like, but I got a past. I can't really do this. This is too much. They're not going to believe me. But these townsfolk are amazed. There's a, even sinners can be saved. Even you, the Samaritan woman, could be saved. You can hear them. You can hear them thinking after learning from the woman. He told me he ever does like, and he still took you? He still accepted you? And so verse 41 bears this out. He's baptizing more than John or anyone else because he uses this, they probably thought the worst of the worst. Samaritan, so that's pretty bad. Woman in this culture, that's pretty bad. Adulterer, that's even worse. Out of everything working against her. And he does that to magnify himself. He's like, I don't use, I don't use big people. I don't use cool people. I use, I use the lowest of the low. That's, that's people I use. That's people I use to proclaim my gospel. The ones who come to me and says, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I'm pretty bad. Because John ends in verse 42. They, the Samaritan people, said to the woman, and notice, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We were brought to him by you, but it's not because of you. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They're brought to the reaper, and then he finishes the work. Jesus, the sower, sends the Samaritan woman. She's sent. She goes and tells. In a sense, she's an apostle. She's a sent one. She goes and tells. In the middle of her adultery, exposed and proclaims, he told me everything I ever did. Didn't cast me out, and he showed me who he is. He exposed me, and he gave to me. That's the remarkable thing about the gospel. He comes to you not because you've got like a well-to-do background, not because you've kind of cleaned yourself up, you've got a good family history, your history looks good, you've got good grades, got your life figured out, you're kind of back on the up and up. He doesn't come to you because of that. He comes to you not because of this. He comes to you in the midst of your sin. Just like the Samaritan woman, he comes to you right in the middle. He says, I'm not going to cast you out. I'm going to take you in. Tells you 
who want to keep, keep coming up with their own efforts. He, he says, just like the woman who says, well, I have to keep coming back here. Because you can keep doing that. You can keep coming back to the well. You can keep doing what you want to do. You can keep this stuff hidden. It's not going to work. Because you have to keep doing it. You have to keep coming back for more water. That's what he tells her. He's like, do you really want to do that? Hide yourself in the heat of the day. It's going to dry out. You're going to need more. Have to come back for more. It's an endless cycle. And as this Samaritan woman, you know darn well she knows this. Just how endless this is. Every single day going back, knowing everybody knows. It's an endless cycle, and you, you can only hide for so long. If, if you want your own water, do this life on your own merits, it is never going to end. Ever. The cycle is endless, and so Jesus asks, do you want that to stop? Do you want that cycle to stop? Approach Jesus with your sin. Saying, Jesus, yeah. I've done this. I've done all of this stuff. This is hard for me to do. So I'm sure this is hard for all of you to do. Yeah, I've done all of this. And he won't cast you out. He's going to cleanse you. So I know what you've done. I'm going to cleanse you of everything. I'm not just going to stop there. I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you out to the people. And they're going to see what I've done to you. I'm going to see what I've done for you. You will enter into his temple as perfectly righteous and in perfect holiness. Not in what you've done, not in your history, not in your past, just like the Samaritan woman experienced and then told her whole town and then basically all the whole town believed. You get to enter into this temple and you're sent to tell others the same thing. Lord, you've told me all I've done, now I can tell others. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for your work. Lord, you don't keep us in the sin that we have. You expose us, but you don't just keep us exposed. We're not just an open wound just festering and growing. Lord, you close us with your righteousness. You cleanse us with your holiness. And you send us out to show other sinners, I found this living water that never ends. It cleanses me, it purifies me, and it keeps me whole for eternity. And Lord, while we still in this life have the effects of our sin, have the effects of our shame, have the effects of our guilt, Lord, our record is clean. People may look at us and still see our history, but we know you've wiped out our history. And you've given us your son's history and your son's work. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And may we tell others the same. For all this in your son's name. Amen.